Hey everyone, you are listening to Kesara Sara with me, Sarah Ann Lalonde. I am a brand new teacher sharing my journey into education with the world, all while promoting risk taking in the classroom and in your professional life. Enjoy this episode. Welcome to episode 53 with Luke Prasad, The Long Term Game. All right, hey everyone, and welcome to the podcast. Tonight, I'm speaking with another educator whom I connected with at the Ontario Summit. So keep listening and you can look forward to another rich conversation. Um, Luke Prasad is actually a K-12 learning coach with the Toronto District School Board, and I am so happy to be speaking with him tonight. We just spoke for about 15 minutes before we press record, so here we are actually diving in to the podcast. I've pressed record and I am so happy to have you here. Luke, how are you tonight? Oh, fantastic, Sarah. How are you? (laughs) I am just really pumped to be talking to you and like, I feel like I already know so much about you and your cats (laughs) and your life and it's just like, you already seem like a really cool dude. So I I would love... Yeah, I would love for our listeners to have the absolute privilege to also get to know you. So can you tell us a little bit about um, your background, how you got into education, and how you ended up being a learning coach with the Toronto District School Board? Uh, Sure. So I'll kind of work backwards. I'm in the second year of being a K-12 learning coach in our school board. And prior to that, I was a STEM coach for two years um, with an initiative with a, our previous director focusing on STEM work in a couple of pilot schools. The interesting move, I think, happened when I was presented with an opportunity from my one of my formal principals to leave the classroom and become a centrally assigned teacher. And I was really hesitant about that because I enjoyed teaching and I enjoyed being in the classroom. And Kevin had said to me, when you choose to take on that role and apply for a central position, if you get it, it's similar to becoming an administrator. The only thing that really changes are the walls of your classroom and the walls of your classroom are a lot bigger. So knowing that in mind and my aspirations and joy for teaching science and all things STEM, we were at a community night and he showed up into the room where I was running a station and he shoved his Blackberry into my face and he says, you need to apply for this position tomorrow morning. Come to my office. I'm like, okay, I'm not too sure what's going on because this is the middle of an event, but sure. Uh, what I really admire about Kevin as an administrator is he also saw himself as a career manager to help teachers advance their careers. And so he had booked a supply teacher to come in for me so we could sit and talk for a period. And he kind of explained this opportunity about becoming a central staff member. And he thought I'd be a good fit and encouraged me to put an application in. And that really shifted uh, the last four years in terms of how it's defined my role as an educator. I first started teaching in 2008 after I finished the concurrent education program at York University. I was teaching in Rexdale, a grade seven classroom. And then two years later, I was surplus out of that school and applied to teach at another school in North York within our board that was actually growing from a K-6 to to a K-8 model. And myself and my teaching partner, Janet, we were brought in to be the lead teachers in the new intermediate program. And it was really interesting being in my third year of teaching and having an administrator at the time who said, what do you think this grade seven program should look like? And being able to shape the transition and growth of a school. 
how could I turn down that opportunity? It was incredible. And so I spent the, the next four years there. Um, our principals had changed over and then Kevin was uh, directing the school as the administrator and then presented me with this opportunity. So I kind of look back at it. I'm finishing my 10th year as a teacher within our school board. Uh, I'm pretty humbled about the opportunities and chances that I have and the faith that people have given me to be a classroom teacher and now to be a central staff member. Wow, that's really powerful. Do you know Tanya Bumstead? Wait, that name is or Tanya yes, that name is familiar. I f- I feel like we're Twitter friends, though. I feel like you guys are actually um, like twins. Oh, because even better. She, you and her are like the same person. So I did it. <laughs> this is just like blowing my mind. Okay, I did a podcast with Tanya and. She is also, um, she's a grade seven, eight teacher. She does STEM. She helped open and transition and shape a school. Like you and her have so much in common. Like I felt like I was talking to Tanya here. I'm like, hey, I've heard this story before. Oh, like something's ringing a bell. Her up on Twitter. You should absolutely connect with her. I think that you and her both would get along <laughs> quite, quite good, quite good. Um. One thing, sorry, as I was listening to you speak about um, kind of taking on the the role that you have now, I was just wondering what made you take that jump um, kind of mm-hmm. out into the classroom, out of the classroom, I should say. Um, because like you said, you love being in the classroom so much with your students. Um, what kind of pushed you off that cliff to allow you to take on this new journey? Part of it was the the challenge and the excitement about having a a STEM-focused position. And four years ago, Mm -hmm. knowing that the board was definitely going to pivot in that direction and be really intentional about the work was really exciting. I think a lot of it, though, has to do with the, the faith and the confidence that Kevin had shared with me. I don't know if I really would have considered it had I just come across the postings um, and kind of seen myself as someone who's capable of lending that expertise uh, at a board or a system level and working with different schools. So I really do owe a huge uh, debt of thanks to Kevin and, and giving me that advice and suggesting to try something different. He also imparted that when you are in a central role, it gives you a chance to look at best practices across the system. And that helps you as an individual educator grow to have a unique perspective. When you come back into the classroom with that perspective, it does shift your entire practice. Granted, I haven't yet returned to the classroom, but every step forward, I carry all of that knowledge and experience into the conversations. And I think even just being able to share some of that work that we did as a STEM coach, my current work as K-12 learning coach, and I'm helping to facilitate PD and I'm working with teachers in all different areas, it just gives me a little bit more to draw on that I've been central for a bit and connecting that with my own classroom practice. So at the end of the day, it's really Kevin who just said, go for it yeah. and see what happens. And I trust it. <laughs> you just jump and build your wings on the way down, right? <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, I feel like that's the best thing a STEM person should do. <laughs> basically. And so like I'm trying, I'm kind of connecting how um, – 
Kevin like believed in you and would you say that he mentored you or like in taking on this new role? Yeah, because now you kind of have like the privilege in your role to mentor and and believe in other teachers and and allowing them to take the jump into new things and and showing them that they are capable of maybe integrating certain tech tools or 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 changing their practice um you know and in using those those best practice practices like you were saying so um how do you find that your role like Ha, not has shifted, but now you are able to mentor other teachers. And that comes, I'm sure, with many um, like advantages and disadvantages. I'm sure it's not always easy. So how do you live that role day to day? Wow, that's a big question. <laughs> I, it's something I I'm think, actually really yeah. wondering. So. so I think the important part, or one of the things that I'm taking away from that question as I unpack it in my head is what do I how do I see myself as a mentor mm-hmm. as one question? And then in a little bit more of an abstract way, why am I a mentor? And I think wrestling with those two, two questions can be really tricky at times and trying to validate yourself as to why you're a mentor, why you're in that mentoring role. And it's kind of accepting that praise and trust that people have had in you in the past to say, you have something to lend to this conversation. We want you part of it. As a system, we want to put teachers in the role of a learning coach. So I feel like the system kind of validates certain people being in that coach role. I think how I go about being a mentor, I think back to when I started my own teaching career and I had a great mentor across the hall, uh, Wayne Sellers, who, again, took me under his wing and just help me kind of survive those first two years uh, mm. because that's always an exciting transition when you're actually in the classroom and you're on your own and you're you don't have a mentor teacher and everything that happens is your responsibility <laughs> so trying to yep. yeah there's a bit of a survival instinct that that kicks in and and Wayne really took care of me and helped me unpack and learn you know some of the tricks that he's used in his career and give me some feedback in terms of just some ideas um, and so I try to relate a lot of those experiences. I'm, I'm also fortunate that whilst I was studying education, I grew up uh, as an air cadet, and then I enlisted into the Canadian Armed Forces working with the cadet program. So I've always been in an education type role, uh, working with cadets across Canada on a leadership course. So I felt I had some opportunities in, ter- in terms of nurturing what it means to be a mentor and an educator of teenagers. And then as I continued with the military, starting to mentor young adults and junior officers. So I really valued the mentors that I had in that program, in that system, and then saw how I should find moments to develop a good practice and to become a critical reflector of how you're, teaching, how you're interacting with students, how you're interacting with cadets in that context. And so I, I'm, I try to look at, well, how do, how would, not necessarily what I would do in that situation, but we kind of talk about, well, what's your vision as a teacher? What do you want to accomplish in the classroom? How are you connecting with your students? And then try to build out from there. So I think a lot of the mentoring work that I'm doing 
is nurturing that reflective practice. And then because I, as a learning coach, I do have a little bit of extra time and privilege to do that little bit of research and that professional reading. And so a lot of the time it's imparting some of that knowledge on the teachers who are in the classroom and giving them some different perspectives or some other ideas. Yeah. So as a learning coach, I guess, see, because I don't know why in my head, I was thinking that you were like tech based only. So you're not like a tech integration coach, a learning coach. What does that, can you unpack just the title? Like what do you do in a day to day? Because I think that I had a kind of like a misconception of what your role actually was. So why don't we say, I wish you could just like <laughs> backtrack a little bit. Why don't you tell us what you're, what you do kind of day to day? Sure. I think day to day, it's really interesting. As a learning coach, um, over the last two years, I've had roughly eight schools or on average eight schools at any one time that I'm, I'm working with. And I do have that STEM and tech background. So there are some schools that have really leveraged that experience in terms of shaping what the professional, professional learning, professional development is for their schools, respectively. Um, okay. And then with other schools, it's working on best practices around literacy, around numeracy, because I have my science specialist, sometimes it's around science in terms of looking at integrated science programs within other subject areas, how to do cross-curricular teaching really well, how to do rotary teaching really well when you have a rotary system and you want to have teachers who are teaching their siloed subjects collaborate and looking at those opportunities. But I definitely fall back on STEM-based pedagogy to do that. So I think as a learning coach, where we are advancing um, the director's vision on equity, well-being, and student achievement. And there's lots of different ways that we're doing that with each individual school and where they are on that continuum. So in terms of the teacher learning that's going to be planned and co-constructed with those teachers uh, for themselves and ultimately impacting the students, it really depends on where that school is. Like there's no one mandate or thou shalt statement for any of the schools. So a lot of it starts out as relationship building and sharing, you know, what are my expertise mm-hmm. in? How can I support you? And even when it's out of my comfort zone, then we're learning on that journey together. And sometimes just working with teachers and learning about new French resources or looking at certain aspects of the drama and dance curriculum that not my area of expertise, but we're there. We're in a co-learning cycle. That's uh, that's part of the role. So you just must be like constantly learning each and every day. How do you how do you manage all of that? Like, how many teachers are you um, supporting? Kind of like in in general, like how many projects would you be running to support different teachers in a month? Let's say because. Um, I can only understand – I can only, like, imagine if, say, uh, four out of ten of these teachers are doing things that are way out of your comfort zone, like, you have to learn kind of from scratch or build from the bottom up at least. Yes. There is a lot of that. <laughs> uh- <laughs> okay. That's so awesome. Like, imagine you're just taking in that, like, each and every day. Like, that's really so cool. There's- there's some really interesting aspects about being a K-12 learning coach, knowing that I'm a PJI qualified teacher and teaching in the elementary panel. I'm fortunate that I did have a high school in my portfolio for the last two years. 
And this year I picked up two of their feeder schools. So a lot of the work that I've been doing with those three schools is looking at that whole K to 12 transition and what that really looks like and what are those best practices that are happening in each of those spaces that become part of the common experience for those students in that community. That's been really interesting, just being able to be in that space and bring those educators together to really look intentionally at the transition planning and that holistic 12-year experience of students, well, 13 years, sorry, um, mm. experience for students. So having eight schools, um, some of them are K-5 to schools, some of them are K-8 to schools. I've got one K-8 middle or six to eight middle school, sorry, and then the one high school, the scope of the number of teachers that I'm working and the projects that I'm working on is constantly changing. I try to develop a cycle of in a certain week, I'll do some professional development withdrawn from the classroom. So some co-learning and some knowledge building around that, and then spend some time implementing that into the classroom around some co-teaching and reflecting on good teaching practice, and then kind of do a debrief and start that cycle all over again. And then I'll try to stagger that across my eight schools. So some schools will be in a planning phase, some schools will be in a co-teaching phase, and then a follow-up. Okay. Now, in a perfect world, that naturally flows, and sometimes that isn't the case. But what I really like about having eight schools and eight different schools that are scattered around my quadrant of the city is that I'm able to draw in different schools that are focusing on the same idea together and simply facilitating a conversation instead of having them independently in each school, I'll just bring two or three schools together and have a couple teachers from there. So we're talking about the same learning that they're all interested in, but they're also getting a chance to meet educators in a completely different area of the city that are also asking those same questions yeah. about you know, how do I make number talks work effectively in my classroom? Um, what are some different ways to engage in good consolidation conversations at the end of a three-part math lesson? Um, how do I set up a guided reading program using technology? How can I use Google Classroom to manage communication two directions with parents? How do I create a Google? So like there's so many questions and I'm lucky I don't have to go into eight different schools and have that same conversation over and over again. I can bring those schools together and we can all engage in that learning together. So that's been super exciting. And I think sometimes those ideas for collaboration, those opportunities for collaboration work if I can work my hardest to nurture a good relationship in each of those schools that not only do they feel comfortable talking about some of their own learnings and wonderings for teachers, and that can be, you know, a bit of a gray area in terms of like how secure they, they are about what, about the things that they want to learn, as well as bringing them into a space to be, you know, professionally vulnerable and critically reflective with each other. Wow. Your role is it very is, and complex and for, has, has many different like facets. <laughs> <laughs> Have you... Does it ever overwhelm you? I'm sorry. It's just like overwhelming me. I'm like excited about it. I'm like, holy moly. So yes, it, there are days where it's certainly overwhelming. That's the easy answer. <laughs> but I I wouldn't be successful if it wasn't for all of my dearest friends and colleagues who are K-12 learning coaches in my area of the city as well. Um, and my early reading coaches uh, that I've well, that I have a chance to work with the guidance counselors, the community support workers. It's, it's really a cohesive team. And I know, especially with the, the early reading coaches and the other K to 12 learning coaches, if it wasn't for them, there's no way I'd be able to survive 
on my own. It's a job that can, or I shouldn't say a job. It's a position that can be really isolating at times because you're constantly mm-hmm. moving from place to place. And I'll be in a grade two class in the morning and I'll be in a grade nine science class in the afternoon. And the next day it'll be something completely different. Wow. So I have like a giant tub of books that I keep in my car. So I have them when I go from place to place, I have my school <laughs> files in my car and I go from place to place. Uh, there are times where you'll walk in and you had a vision in mind of where you want the PD to go, but the teachers will, will want to go somewhere else. And so I'm trying to massage that relationship because we do have some deliverables and objectives that we're working towards, but they also have their own wonderings and how do I merge that to? And sometimes it means, you know what, what I planned and did the research on and, and have all the citations and all the handouts and all the hands-on learning that we're going to do, we're going to park that for a couple of weeks and let's talk about what you're facing mm-hmm. now and what's really burning right now. And thankfully, I have all these resources that I just keep walking around with. Um, so if it wasn't, yeah, if it wasn't for my colleagues, because they're, we're all busy. Um, we have, some of us have a few more schools uh, than the eight. Some of us have a few less to try and, you know, meet the diverse needs of the schools that we have. But, you know, within... Sometimes within 10, 15 minutes, I could post a message or an email to, you know, a, a colleague that I know is an expert in this area. and say, I'm leading this session on so-and-so. What would you suggest? What are the, the highlights that I should talk about? Because we can't be experts in everything. And sometimes there's a misconception because we are a K-12 learning coach. We're experts in the content. And that isn't the case. What we are working towards is good, effective practice in the classroom. And there are times where the content needs to be reviewed and learned. And sometimes there's a a whole co-learning piece that goes with it. And there are other times where it's just unpacking what does good practice actually look like, sound like, and feel like in your classroom. Wow. I love that for you, even though like you said it kind of like straight up that this role can be very isolating, but what keeps you going and kind of keeps you afloat is like the members of your team and your colleagues. And I think that's really powerful. And I know looking forward into my teaching career um, in September, I I am looking forward to the support that I will have from colleagues, kind of like you mentioned um, in your first two years uh, with Wayne, who mentored you. I look forward to um, kind of collaborating with many different mentors who, again, just like you said, have different kind of expertise in in various um and various things. And that's one thing that I love about Twitter and creating a PLN and networking is that I was able in the past two years for my BED really connect with a whole bunch of educators from all across Ontario and Canada and the United States. And I know for a fact that I could go to any of them and kind of, like you said, shoot out an email or a a Twitter DM and, and have an answer in an instant, which is just, that is what comforts me in knowing that I start, you know, on my own in September. Um, but yeah, it's just the power of the power of people and and building those strong relationships is is definitely the foundation. And I love how passionate you are about your role. Um, I, it would be so cool to work with you. I was just thinking about that, but I was wondering, and you could answer this any any way you want, but. I was just, I'm opening the door to this. I was wondering if you had just like a really cool or fun or a really proud success story um, in the past couple of years that you've been working in this role. Um, 
just one project or even just a moment, whether it be with a, an educator or a student where you were like, wow, you know, this is why I get up every day. This is, this is what I love. This is, this is what I do. Do you have one of those? I do. There's, if we're, if we're okay for time, there's three quick ones that I'd like to share just to, to show like the depth of like what type of this work could look like. So my first one is going to go back four years ago when I started as a STEM coach and the school that I was at, the principal at that school was actually one of my practicum teachers back in the days at York, which is awesome. So I have the chance to reconnect with an educator that I highly respect and have always seen as a mentor. Um, and so at that school, we actually developed a K to eight robotics continuum over the two years. And we looked at all the different opportunities that students will explore software coding with Scratch Junior and Scratch, and then hardware coding with robotics through the Dash and Dot robots, through the Lego WeDo, and then the Lego EV3 kits. And in doing so, we created a classroom set of first Lego League teams, as well as an after-school team. And so four years later, and I haven't been in that school for two years, that work is still continuing. And I think that's one of the hardest things about being in this role and kicking off an initiative. You're always questioning your efficacy. Is this just going to be a one-off? Is it sustainable? Have I done enough to encourage the educators at that school to keep going when I'm not there? And that I don't, I still don't know how to answer that question. I could ask it of myself. I don't know how to answer it, but I know that four years later, it's still working really strong. And then, so that's one anecdote. And a footnote to that is last week in a chance encounter, I ran into a fellow educator whose uh, children were actually going to that school at the time and got hooked into robotics and then went off to transfer or move to a new area of the city, I believe. They ended up at another elementary school. And they themselves, as students, advocated for the school to develop their own Lego robotics team and have been like these fantastic student leaders. And we're talking students that are at like grade five, grade six, grade seven ages, starting up and like being the catalyst to developing this great opportunity for students. So it's like, right. And so going back to what Kevin said about like the walls of your classroom just become bigger, there's no way that I would know even as a learning coach, whether any of this work has an effect. And I've always kind of reflected, especially with the STEM focus that I had, like, well, we really won't know what the outcome of all these great interventions and professional learning that we're doing as teachers and how we're changing our classrooms. We're not going to know really how successful that is until several years later, when those students in elementary or often high school, when those students in second in high school or often their post-secondary adventures, whatever these, those are, to know whether or not what we focused on at that time, what we did to shift our practice at that time had an effect. And here I am like four years later, I'm getting this like small sliver and it's just, uh, it's, you know, like you kind of get goosebumps talking Mm -hmm. about it because like, wow, that like actually happens. Um, So that's really exciting. And then the other anecdote to share is at one of my schools, I've been there for two years as a learning coach, and we've been really focused on reflecting on our math practice and how we're teaching math effectively and using all of the data that we have available to inform what we can 
what we know about our practice and what we know about our students. And so I was working with their teacher leaders and we were looking at some, some school data trending over the last two years, both uh, the provincial EQO test data, as well as some independent um, dat- data that's collected at the beginning of the year, some other diagnostics work. And working with the teacher leaders, we realized, hey, it's interesting to note that from grade one to by the time students are in grade seven, specifically in the probability math strand, uh, this the the Cat four data gives you essentially a high, middle, and low ranking of how students are performing in all these different subject areas. And what we noticed was, by the time students were in grade seven, no one was scoring in the high section. Everyone was middle and low, and then the marks were closer towards middle and high in the earlier grades. And we're kind of wondering why that was. And a lot of this reflection huh. thoughts that came from the data came more from the educators and the teacher leaders at the school rather than me suggesting, hey, why don't we look at this and wonder what's happening there? Like there were a lot of organic questions. And I think that came from working with the school for two years and reflecting on our practice. And so they led the sessions uh, working with the teachers and I was supporting and and being that helpful uh, voice to keep the conversations going. And with all the teachers at that school, we did an intentional focus and wondered why probability as a math strand was trending lower and lower and decided to do something about it and develop probability type investigations that were much more meaningful because we came to the conclusion that sometimes probabilities left until like May, June. <laughs> and a lot, right. And a lot of the times it's make a board game. <laughs> um, and while that can be super meaningful we want to be really intentional in trying to interrupt that trend, specifically around one strand. But for me, the big takeaway was in the two years of reflecting and all of this PD and all of this co-teaching and all the practice that we were doing, here I have these teacher leaders who are, who are choosing to reflect and do that research on their own um, and start asking the questions of themselves. And so I spent less time being a facilitator and more of just being a fly on the wall and throwing a couple ideas here and there and sharing best practices, which, you know, when we look at a gradual release of responsibility, I think in a way as learning coaches, we kind of want to work ourselves out of a job. Uh, There'll always be work to do at those schools, but really like in (laughs) my imaginary world that exists in my brain, um, with infinite time and resources, we work ourselves out of needing to be in those schools. That's kind of insane, but like genius at the same time. And I don't think anybody on the podcast has ever said they're looking to work themselves out of a job, but what you're saying is just so true and and you mean so well by it, right? I hope so. I hope that comes across. (laughs) No, well, of course. (laughs) You technically don't just work yourself out of out of a job in, in the one school and then continue to do that throughout. Absolutely. And I mean, the reality is the work will never be complete. There's always more to look at. There's always another mm-hmm. opportunity um, where... And everything just like continues yeah. to evolve, Absolutely. right? Um, it's almost crazy to try and, and try and keep up with it. I think... What helps to keep me a little bit more 
I don't want to say grounded. Grounded is the right word, but I guess realistic on the optimism piece is knowing that it will take a few years, many years of sustained intentional reflection and practice and development to really shift and make a significant move within a school. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with looking back six months into a school, a year into a school, two years later, and wondering, am I making an impact? And being okay with not knowing whether or not I am, but at the same time still staying committed to that whole school and the staff at that school continuing to push their own practice. Because I know over time, if we keep working at it, we'll get there um, and we'll hit a point where, not that it's a checkbox, but that we've moved along that continuum for the better. And sometimes that's that's hard to see when you know your administrators are going to change every couple of years, your educators are going to change every couple of years for all kinds of reasons. Mm-hmm. And so that idea of a sustained push with so many dynamic pieces, uh, I feel I've, I need to do my job as a learning coach, my role, um, and my duty to that school and those students to help keep that momentum of learning going. So what you're telling me is that to be a learning coach, a K-12 learning coach, you have to be very patient, yes. right? <laughs> I think it's, it's, a, it's the long game. Yeah. Do you think, do you think that other learning coaches also see it? Is that like a philosophy that you hold strongly or that is kind of integrated within all of their learning coaches? Cause I, I've never really heard, like, I, I love this. I love your perspective and I, I very strongly believe in it. Um, but I was just wondering, I've never necessarily heard about people talk about, you know, the long-term game. I know you have to in like have a vision long-term, but a lot of people live by like the small day-to-day wins or like, you know, the projects that maybe they're not reflecting on if it will just be like a, a one-year wonder kind of project or like you were saying, reflecting on how, is this actually going to kind of stay and click and, and, and grow. Um, a lot of people just kind of, do their their day-to-day kind of like mm-hmm. list or yeah. tasks or whatever it may be their, their mentorship and and all that stuff and um but I really like that philosophy of you just totally being cool with exactly not having the answer because it does take time of how your impact will will kind of have an influence on the students in the long run. So is that something that you, like with the Toronto District School Board and like the other learning coaches, is that something that you guys talk about and reflect on? I think so. I think that's what helps keep some of the work that we do more in a positive light. I think it's easy to look day to day and feel like we took a half step forward, we took a couple steps backwards. And we keep, I think... For me personally, if I do that day-to-day measuring, it always feels like I'm moving backwards when I'm trying to compare eight schools. And then we're talking about our school board that has over 400 schools. So I think you have to look at a little bit more of a long game in terms of making bigger strides forward. That being said, you know we have to acknowledge that there is a sense of urgency to keep moving forward. And there's mm-hmm. a moral imperative to keep right. moving forward. And we can't rest on our small wins. We have to celebrate them 
and we have to you know, we have to celebrate that we've got to you know photograph that we've got to tweet the world about these great small wins that we have but we can't rest and we can't stop on that small win we have to keep looking to the next one we have to keep looking to the next iteration the next opportunity the next professional development the next piece of learning the next year's students that are going to come into my classroom in two months from now i have to already be thinking about that already looking forward towards that and being ready for those all those next steps and i think on aggregate we keep moving forward and if we can keep doing that then then i'm okay looking at the long game there are some days that it's a little bit harder <laughs> to keep that in mind but yeah Rightfully i think so. that comes from also being being in the career of education and being and committing your life to it because hmm. that's really what you're doing <laughs> absolutely so we're talking about moving forward what does september hold for you oh <laughs> so that's pretty exciting and and <laughs> humbling in a way. Um, I've been fortunate enough to apply shortlist and then be seconded by the Ministry of Education and to be doing some work around STEM-based pedagogy within the curriculum, which I'm super excited about and wondering what that's going to look like and thinking about how much wider the walls of the classroom are um, as it has been growing and shifting over the years since I have been in my physical classroom, um, I'm wondering about, you know, how will I do the best that I can to make sure that all of the educators that I've met over the years who are so passionate about STEM-based pedagogy and its importance in the classroom, like how do I help advance that work on a provincial level? Um, and I think there again, I'm looking at the mm -hmm. long game for just, you're a long game I, I kind of guy. I said the, <laughs> it's almost like you zoom out. And so if I'm zooming out of yeah. the classroom, yeah. Like the perspective yeah. is a lot larger, so right? The more, the more I zoom out. And I think the promise of being at the ministry is about as far as that zoom button goes on the screen. Um, then I think yeah, so. I do have to look at the long game. Because I think the small wins that I'll have in that, well, actually, I have no idea how to define that yet because I haven't started. Um, but I'm excited for the for the opportunity. I'm humbled by the opportunity, but I'm certainly excited to see exactly what that work will entail and to meet the incredible uh, teachers that are seconded to the ministry and all those great leaders that are in our province that have been recognized by the ministry to do that work. So that should be exciting. Yeah. Do you know like who your team members are going to be, what that looks like? Uh, no, it's been like, I have an idea of like one person that I've met because, or two people that I've met because they interviewed me. <laughs> um, but this itself was just finalized this past week. Cool. Well, so, congratulations. Oh, thank That's you. Like yeah. I will be very excited to hopefully follow some of that on Twitter. How do you plan on, can you share some of, Sort of some of the insight that's going on at the ministry, or how will that work? I I, I don't be know. Top I secret. Mean, yeah, I guess it's, <laughs> it's all top secret at this point. It's like a great episode yeah. of Mission Impossible. No, I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's it's actually kind of worrisome because I think about all your listeners <laughs> that are going to listen to this podcast and be like, "Oh, he's the problem." Um, so. Oh dear. <laughs> Well, what are, what are your your hopes for this position? Like, I know you, you kind of um, 
touched upon it previously, but what obviously there was something deep down inside of you mm-hmm. that like you knew that you wanted this. So what do you want to either take from this opportunity or or kind of give to this opportunity? So I know it's going to focus on STEM being integral part of curriculum in itself rather okay. than writing a separate curriculum document on STEM. And I think that's the part that really excites me the most because when it's written into all the different curriculum documents and I'm kind of envisioning what this looks like and knowing that the scope really hasn't been explained to me because that will happen in September. um, I envision one day being able to open up a curriculum document. And when you look through the sections and all that front matter of every curriculum document, it's so important to, to read through those things, that there'll be a section about how this curriculum document can be supported through STEM-based pedagogy, how and why that matters. And that as a system, as a large, very, very large system, we move further away from STEM being a checkbox that, oh, I did STEM today and we're done, and just becomes more of a long-lasting, endearing experience that is continuum-based, that is skill-based over the years and there's there's so much um there's so much faith and hope that i have in seeing it play out that way one thing i think that would help and that if you could i'm not sure how you could have an impact on this but in teachers college having new teachers who are coming into the profession um just being more aware of what stem based learning is and and just like just the foundation of STEM, I have personally, I will very openly admit that I am no expert, very, very little um, knowledge in STEM-based learning. And I'm really excited to to learn more about it each and every opportunity, opportunity that I get. Um, but from my experience and from other, you know, teacher candidate experience, I definitely can attest that there are not enough even in my science class, like I was in um, JI, junior intermediate, and we had a science class. Um, and I don't think we even touched on STEM, which is like <laughs> mind blowing. And I don't want to discourage you. So I'm just going to stop there. But that's kind of my two cents of, you know, if this is where we see education going, you know, it needs to also be integrated into our learning and into our teacher programs as well, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, and I don't know, I mean, the, the, the ministry is a big place and there are a lot of moving parts there. And I know there are people that are looking at the relationship that the ministry has with uh, faculties of education all across the province. Right. Um, yeah. Again, because my imagination is awesome and I like to live in my head, I completely envision what it looks like um, and how it all plays out. And I think, you know, that's something that I definitely want to work towards. I know that there are, there are some schools that have done some really cool work around focusing on STEM as part of the teacher candidate experience. And I know, I also know that there are fantastic mentor teachers that 
will engage students into exploring that space, even if they're not comfortable themselves as educators, but are so open to going on that journey with student teachers. I think back to my classroom days um, at Bedford in my second school. Every year, the four years that I was teaching there, I had a teacher candidate from York. And there were always students from the fine arts program. And they always ended up with me. Hmm. And <laughs> my jam was math and science. <laughs> and I, every, every first day, it's kind of a surprise. Like, oh, I'm in a math and science class, but I'm studying music or I'm studying drama or I'm studying visual arts. And so yeah. I always say I have, as, as a student teacher and what your expertise in, I have so much to learn from you. And this is a space where I'm going to make it as safe as possible so you can try out all those crazy things in science and math and merge the two together and explore technology with incredible students and just be in that space of play and develop that lifelong learning for STEM. And I think that's that's also a big part of it. Like, if you're going to be a STEM educator, quote unquote, I'm making mm-hmm. air quotes, like you could say, <laughs> um, I think there's... And just being an educator in general, but I think specifically around STEM, for me personally, it means like I can't stop learning. I can't stop seeing the things that are trending and what other schools are doing amazing and what other educators are doing that's so amazing. And I know sometimes Twitter can be very overwhelming. I remember the first time when I started a Twitter account as an educator Hmm. and looking at Twitter, I'm like, okay, so today I missed 500 tweets. And I remember thinking those first couple of time scrolling through it here are 500 examples of why i'm not a good teacher because you see all these incredible things that are happening and then but then that's the the, i've shifted my thinking and the way to look at it is like here are 500 different things i could try 500 examples of my colleagues who i only know as twitter friends sometimes you get to meet them in face to face and that's super exciting um yeah (laughs) but there are 500 provocations that I have as a teacher to like, hey, why don't I try looking at it this way? Or here's a different way that I could think about it. And then I started to develop the courage that when a teacher tweets something out, they're, I feel like they're also looking for sometimes a little bit of validation and sometimes a little bit of feedback. So I know I've, I've dialogued with a lot of teachers back and forth. They'll post things that their students are working on. I'll post a wondering question because I'm honestly wondering about like, how would you students respond to this question or have you thought about looking at a design a certain way like and I think just leveraging that I have so many people in my Twitter network alone that could help push that reflective practice and push being a STEM-based educator or a good educator in general and and I mean I follow like the STEM piece and I know every educator that's connected with social media they have they follow the things that they're so passionate about and I think that's what makes us all become really successful. And then it's then it's looking at bringing all of that together, taking it out of the silos, into the common space, into those common projects, into all of that co-learning as a group of educators with each of us having an expertise in an area. That's, that's when that STEM magic happens. Yeah. Well, so the next and final question that I have for you, and you kind of touched upon it already, but um, I want to break down the silos between experience and veteran educators and teacher candidates and teachers who are coming into the profession, all of everyone, everyone in education, um, especially new teachers, basically, basically. Um, But more specifically, if I can just, we're going to 
crank it down a notch, um, connecting teachers with new teachers and teacher candidates through a little tidbit or um, piece of advice, something that you would tell your first year teacher self, um, you know, reflecting and looking back on on those first couple years, um, what would you tell a new teacher coming into the profession about how maybe they should uh, prepare for their first year, deal with their first year? What what would you tell them mm-hmm. looking back? Oh boy. If, yeah. If I could go back 10 years ago, I think that I'd remind myself that someone just based on the conversations through the interview process, there's people that already have faith in you. And I think that's, that's easy to lose. There's people that have faith in you. Um, That every day students are coming at their best, that every day students are courageous and capable of learning. And that every day you, as an educator, are courageous and capable of learning. Those are some really big ideas to unpack. And I think there are some days where you feel that more than other days. And, and that's also fine. But I think holding holding those little pieces kind of true day in, day out, um, I think that would have been, I think that can be just good mindfulness to have day in, day out when you start that first year second year, third year, first year in a new school, first year teaching a new grade, first year. There's a lot of firsts. Teaching in a new program. Education. Yeah, (laughs) and every year there's a first, right? Like, you know, I'm I'm working with a colleague who I met 10 years ago through coaching cricket in our school board, which is awesome. And now we're working together and he's starting his first of teaching in – an MID program, because that's what he's passionate about shifting his career after teaching phys ed for 25 years. Wow. So his September yeah. is new. His first. his first, yeah. And yeah, so like, you're, you're always going to have a first day of something. That's really powerful to think about, actually. Mm-hmm. Kind of comforts me. <laughs> oh, <laughs> um, I think you're going to have, you know, I think teaching is is such a rewarding career. It's such an amazing career. Um, And it's, it is a long game. Yeah. And, you know, I look back in it, my first class, if they followed the traditional, I don't, I shouldn't call it traditional, but if they followed, I guess the typical second or public education, post-secondary, if they're starting their careers, they're, they're graduating. Um, and so, you, you know, you'll never know kind of how they look back and see those years. And, and hopefully the decisions that I made in the classroom, the projects that I did and the learning that we did was, you know, net positive for them. And specifically around science and specifically around STEM, and I've shared this with, with my colleagues, um, I think that especially in elementary science, and I kind of want to end it like end a, a big thought on this, I feel my role as a science educator is to keep kids interested in science, to keep kids seeing themselves as scientists so that when they're in grade 10, going into grade 11, 
they choose not to drop the sciences. Mm -hmm. Wow. That, and, and that's that's, that's my huge. long game. Yeah. That's my long game. I've got to do my have, part in that year yeah, that I yeah, have. Yeah. Huh. And then hopefully it continues throughout, right? Right. And the, like, I have no control over those things. But for mm -hmm. whatever... Um, whatever situation happens that I, I, I'm privileged to have students that I teach, especially in sciences, my job is, my passion is to keep them interested about science. So they choose not to drop it. And I think if I could do my part and if everyone wow. does their part, then specifically around STEM, I think that's how we, we change that pipeline. Everyone has to do their part and you've got to do your part in the long game. That is so awesome, Luke. I, just want to thank you for sharing your passion with me tonight. I can just, I could just tell, like in the tone of the of your voice and the experiences that you shared with me, and all of your like wisdom. Um, I, like I said before, I press record with you on the podcast. I never have any expectations on where the podcast is going to go, but I just love where this one went tonight and I'm really excited to share it out with the listeners. So if anyone is interested in connecting with you, what is the easiest way to do that? Um, I still believe in the carrier pigeon model. And so please feel free to direct your carrier pigeons and my cat will happily meet them. Excellent. <laughs> um, but for the few <laughs> social media users that might be out there, um, my Twitter handle is at Luke Persaud and on LinkedIn, Luke Persaud. And I look forward to dialogue with anyone. I think every time I get to connect with another person, I get to learn more about myself and more about education. So thank you for uh, inviting me for the conversation. I like this is this is exciting meeting you back um, in Kitchener at the EdTech Summit and hearing you speak. And yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah what happened? <laughs> now we're in June. Like now it's the end of June. I'm just so happy that we were able to finally connect. I don't actually no. know what happened between April no, and now, but quick. it doesn't feel like it was that long. So no, <laughs> no, it doesn't. It's kind of scary, but yeah, it does not feel like it was that long. <laughs> Amazing. Well, I hope that you have the best and most relaxing and rewarding summer so that you are kind of rest and relaxed for, you know, starting back up in September, energized and well, and, and for yeah. you as well. I mean, I hope you have a great summer. Um, I think like you get a chance to have these great conversations with educators. So I can only imagine like how many ideas keep swirling yes, around your head and all these sure. things that you want to try. <laughs> and so yeah, when you get into that classroom, it's going to be an amazing playground for you to co-construct with your students. And so one, two, three, go. Yeah, that's gonna... one, two, three, go. Um, but I think for a lot of us that when we look back in our practice, yeah, I'm I'm super excited for you and a little bit envious that that's the energy and the excitement that you have for your, your first day and that excitement that you have to bring oh. with your students. So kudos on you. And, and I hope you have a great, great first jump. <laughs> I love it. I love it so much. <laughs> Thank you so much, Luke. And we will be chatting sooner than later. <laughs> Thank you. you Have too. a great night. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Kesara Sara. I look forward to continuing to learn from one another. So what did you think of this episode? Let me know by leaving me a comment in SoundCloud or sending me a tweet to at Sarah, S-A-R-A-H, 
Lalonde, L-A-L-O-N-D-E-E. And you can also subscribe to my podcast on iTunes under Quesada Sara. And hey, did you know that Quesada Sara is a proud member of the Voice Ed Radio Network? Check them out at voiceed.ca.